0: Coming up in this episode. maybe
1: from a working class background and you take a risk and it doesn't work, that failure can be catastrophic. That can cost you your livelihoods. Literally, you can be homeless. Yeah. So I, I think that's why a lot of parents who don't have wealth to fall back on are kind of nervous about entrepreneurship. Because in many ways, they should be. Because the risk of it going
2: wrong is they do have to pick up the pieces. It's a really important point you mentioned there about the sort of value alignment too right because the value alignment goes beyond just the value alignment of the business itself but also as individuals like your, your own your own personal and cultural alignments because you're working very close with one another at these early stages and if you don't actually align on a personal value basis then you're probably going to strangle each other right like you need to have some agreement on on the basis and foundation of you know whatever it is shared morality or or, 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 you know, you know, society, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, social values, etc. Like those are important things to have. So,
1: so you should have a very clear hypothesis at each stage of your fundraising journey. What is that funding going to do for you? And you want that to be something you can capture in literally a couple of sentences, but then behind that, you'll also have like a, a budget and a more in-depth breakdown, but you should be able to capture the essence of why you're raising the f- funding in, in two sentences.
0: The Founders Unplugged Podcast. Hosted by Greg McCallum. Raw, uncensored conversations with startup founders.
2: Look, there's literally one bit of structure to this entire thing, and I do it right at the beginning, and then we just start chatting. Um, and that is to ask my guests to introduce themselves, their business. You can take as long or as short as you need, and probably what I'll do while you're doing that, if it's okay with you, you just up on my screen, or share your LinkedIn and, and the website. Um, so so yeah spotlight as it were is on you (laughs) no pressure um so yeah tell us who you are and and about about zero gravity
1: great um it's it's great to great to be speaking again so i'm I'm the founder and ceo of zero gravity and we're a tech platform that powers students from low opportunity areas into top universities and careers so i founded the company five years ago from my student bedroom of the last 200 quid of my student loans. It was a real bootstrapped startup at the beginning, and I I founded it out of a kind of personal passion slash experience, which is, I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley, which is between Leeds and Wakefield. It's a post-industrial town. I grew up in a single parent family. My mum's a speech therapist in the NHS, and I made a journey through state schools to Oxford University. I just saw firsthand how high the barriers are for students like me to break into elite institutions. If you're someone who grows up with financial anxiety, you don't have access to resources to buy you know, textbooks, private tuition, you go to a underperforming state school, your parents have never been to university before, you come from an area where you're not surrounded by opportunity, it's really difficult to, to succeed. Like You really need to defy the odds to get into these elite institutions that indeed if you come from a wealthy background in the uk you're six times more likely to win a place at a top university than someone from a low-income background so that gulfing opportunity is vast and i think everyone knows about that intuitively but i wanted to do something about it and my entire life had been defined by technology i, I was i'm a digital native I've, I've grown up with technology whether it was you know, facebook whatsapp instagram snapchat Twitter, uh, all these incredible apps have defined my life. It just kind of made me wonder why is no one developed technology to try and solve this problem? How you break that link between background and opportunity. And that's where the idea for zero gravity came from, I suppose. And that's what I've been doing for the past five years.
2: And that, uh, yeah, thanks for that. And, um, and by the way, I'll, I'll provide the links to the stuff I showed on screen in the description for anyone who wants to have a, uh, a further look. Um, so, so... Tell us more, or tell me more. Um, how did you, or are you, uh, uh, attempting to solve that problem? Because it's it's quite a complex problem, and at, and at first glance, you wouldn't sort of necessarily immediately be able to make the 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 link between how technology can solve it, because it's it's quite a deep rooted societal sort of issue, right? So, so what is it? Your your How are you going about that?
1: It's a very complex problem. they probably one of the deepest problems in society itself. But I think, like any problem, that the way you solve it is you take it back to its kind of simplest elements first. Yeah. So we, we try to solve the problem in, in stages. And the first question that we try to answer is how do you actually spot talent in the first place? Like everybody can tell a kind of personal anecdote about how they grew up with people who were more talented than them. But just at some point in their journey, they kind of fell through the cracks. So they veered off into a different direction at school, or they didn't get into a certain university, or their first career choice was a bad choice. Everyone has that story about a friend who's been on that experience. And and to try and tackle that problem of how you spot talent and support early, what we did is we developed an algorithm which leverages some pretty non-insidious data points, so things like your postcodes, where you went to school, what area you live in, and use that uses that data to build a kind of holistic profile of like how disadvantaged are you, how many barriers have you had to overcome in your life? And then how good is your performance relative to what we'd expect from someone from your background? So it's almost like two different indexes, like a disadvantage index and then like a a performance index. And, And we developed the algorithm to kind of spot talent early that otherwise might be missed by the traditional kind of university admissions or recruitment systems. Now that person Mm. who is not a straight A student, but maybe they have a smuttering of no Bs and Cs, but they go to a school where most people are failing and they're growing up in poverty. Now that person might not look incredible on paper, on a CV, but if you knew the context of where that person achieved those outcomes, you'd think that is a massive outperformer. That's someone with incredible raw talent and potential. Mm. So we developed an algorithm to identify those people And then what we've done is we've integrated that into data sets, big data sets that we already know exist. And one such data set is the school's information system. So every single school in the UK has its own information system. They tend to use exactly the same software and we created a platform that integrates with that, which essentially enables school to like talent spot those people in the school who have the potential to go into a top university and career, but might not necessarily be getting the support that they, they need. So we now work with over 700 state schools in the UK, so around 30% of the entire market. And that essentially enables us to see 30% of all the student data in the UK and talent spot those students. So that that was the first question we tried to tackle. How do you identify talent? And we developed technology to, to do that. And the second question that probably jumps out then is, Okay, once you've actually identified the talent, how do you meaningfully change people's chances of accessing these top institutions? And the way we did that is we took things that we knew already worked, like mentorship, access to great content, and bringing opportunities to people rather than forcing them to find them themselves, having access to a really aspirational community. And we just found a way to digitise those things. And we built a platform that made those concepts scalable and deeply engaging on a single app, which students could have in their pocket at all times. So Let's say you're a 17-year-old student from Sunderland and you want to go to top university. Through the Zero Gravity platform, you get connected with a mentor who studies at that same university studying the same subject. You can connect with them in weekly video calls. The platform will design the tailored, personalised goals and milestones planned for you so you know what you need to do at each stage to optimise your chance of getting in. You get access to content from university admissions officers, You'll have no careers presented directly to you based on your interests. You can connect with a community of 30,000 students across the entire country who are going on that same journey. And just bring all those things together in a really engaging experience which students can can engage with daily rather than as a kind of like one-off thing. That's Mm. how you kind of tangibly, substantially change people's chances of getting into elite institutions. It's the law of compounding in digital form, like making people 1% better every single week over a long enough time interval, can really transform someone's outcomes. And, and that's what we've tried to do by developing technology to, to do that.
2: And it provides that all important access, right, which is, which is, you know, going back to what you're saying about the problem statement, essentially, that is is a large majority of the problem, like having the access to the this this sort of information or these individuals, you know, the, the alumni, whatever it might be you're actually pre- you're breaking down those barriers, which is awesome. So um, when did you guys launch uh, originally? I, I'm looking online. It says uh, sort of around 2018. So, but, but presumably that isn't necessarily when you launched. Is that when you sort of initially conceptualized the, the platform, is it? Yes,
1: yeah, so I started working on it as soon as I graduated from university in the summer of 2018. For oh, right. the first uh, sort of year and a half, it was kind of a very bootstrapped bedroom-esque startup it it was me doing it by myself for the first nine months I and mean, then there was one other person that worked alongside me I and mean, then it was in 2020 that we raised our first pre-seed funding that we could finally kind of put our foot down the accelerator and really begin to quickly scale so yeah I've been doing mm-hmm. this since 2018 but the kind of launch of the zero gravity brand and the scaling of it really started in in 2020. Um, and and, and is also quite interesting because I'm someone who's from a kind of low-opportunity area of the country myself, went to state schools, so I was still grappling with a lot of those challenges that the members on our platform face, just in a slightly different context. Like when I started a, a company, I didn't really have anyone in my network who was an entrepreneur had started a business before, so I didn't really have any advice on tap that I could uh, I could tap into. Certainly, they've had access to friends and family funding. Like, I, I found that phrase quite comical, to be honest, when I first yeah. heard it, because I was like, who can just raise like 30, 40, 50K from their family? That sounded mm. like nuts and insane to me. So, that was also tricky. I had to build a network from scratch to get funding. I and mean, also, I, I was surrounded by a community of people who thought entrepreneurship was a little bit silly and risky. And honesty. as the joke goes in yorkshire if you say you're an entrepreneur that probably means you're unemployed and right. when i told my sort of family and my friends i wanted to start a business people thought i was completely insane because i was turning down these very cushy secure graduate jobs to take something that was incredibly risky and if you don't live in a community where kind of entrepreneurialism is is understood and valued that most people are actually detractors when it comes to starting a a business and that was a massive cultural force i had to overcome in the early days where mm. even the people who i kind of loved and respected the most to be completely honest were completely behind the choice i made like they weren't trying to undermine the choice but i, I could just tell they didn't believe in what i was doing and they were kind of a bit skeptical about it and i mean that's one of the difficulties about entrepreneurship in the in the uk people only celebrate you once you've kind of got all the hallmarks of kind of success mm, and credibility yeah. People don't celebrate taking that first initial step, especially if you're from a background where that is completely unorthodox.
2: And it's kind of, it's insane really that that is the rhetoric um, among certain groups in our society uh, around entrepreneurialism, that we look down on it, especially from the working class side of things, because you would imagine what, it makes very little sense. You, You would imagine it would be the other way around, almost. But I wonder where that's come from. You know, like, you know is that by design to some extent you know it's it's very odd or, or is it just maybe because I mean people who love you they want what's best for you right they don't want to see you fail um, I, I think we've I, there's been I don't know if you've listened to much of the episodes on the show but there's been a few instances where we've talked in the past with guests and uh about this topic and one one guest in particular mentioned how uh there's a kind of a psychological incentive for loved ones to discourage you from taking these kinds of journeys because ultimately it's selfish because it prevents them having to deal with the pick up the pieces if it goes wrong which i thought was hugely interesting from a psychological perspective of like your risk is their risk right so it's like but yeah no i I can imagine that must have been um must have been a very interesting thing to try and navigate but uh are they are they a bit more on board with things now (laughs) more on board of
1: things now but i think you've hit the nail on the head there to be honest greg which is you can only be what you can see at the end of the day so if you can't okay. see entrepreneurs in your network it, it it's perceptibly a very risky thing to do and something that you're not necessarily going to be able to understand and entrepreneurship is all about risk at the end of the day yeah. um but I think to be able to take risk you have to have a high enough risk tolerance mm. and the thing is if you are someone who's from an affluent background your risk tolerance can be much higher because the kind of cost of failure, it's not catastrophic. If you're right. from a wealthy background, you start a business, it doesn't take off, then you can always fall back on the bank of mum and dad. Now, you're not gonna be out on the street. If you're from a working class background and you take a risk and it doesn't work, that failure can be catastrophic. Now, that can cost mm. you your livelihoods, literally you can be homeless. Yeah. So I, I think that's why a lot of parents who don't have wealth to fall back on are kind of nervous about entrepreneurship because in many ways they should be. Because the risk of it going wrong is they do have to pick up the pieces, and that can be financially catastrophic for that Mm. family. I think people from wealthy backgrounds are also quite adept at spreading the risk as well as entrepreneurship. And that's where the idea, I suppose, of friends and family funding comes from, which is it's not just about raising money to scale your venture. It's also about diversifying risk within your network that even founders who are very independently wealthy often still raise equity funding so they can diversify the risk away from themselves onto other people. And that makes it far easier to kind of have a higher risk tolerance. So I think that's what you also get from being in a wealthy network, not just a higher risk tolerance, but a better ability to spread and diversify risk. And and that dynamic just doesn't exist in working class communities. We've got no access to, to capital. And that's why I think you have so few entrepreneurs from working class backgrounds. Indeed, there was a study done by Sifted a couple of years ago in the UK They found that 75% of founders in the UK are from uh, sort of professional backgrounds and have two parents and professional jobs. So the rest of the UK doesn't look like that as a whole. Actually, most people don't have a parent who's in a professional job. So the startup sector is actually one of the most unrepresentative sectors of society of of any industry. And I think Mm -hmm. it goes back to that point around risk and access to capital that you were just talking about.
2: Yeah. But what is is interesting as well is that a lot of – A lot of startup founders or entrepreneurs, whatever you want to call them, you know, individuals who want to start their own business in one way or another. Uh, A lot of the individuals I've met through my career with the more working class backgrounds tend to class themselves more as entrepreneurs as opposed to founders and will generally be, you know, launching or running service led businesses. And that's equally as much risk and equally as much business acumen, equally as much, you know, to be learned along the way. you know, really pushing the boundaries in their area of whatever it is they're doing. And I'm talking about, you know, mechanics, you know, uh, window cleaners, whatever, like, you know, that they're equally difficult businesses to spin up with with all all the same challenges and met quite often by the same sort of pushback from their community or family members and so on for for taking the crazy risk. Um, And yet we don't really talk about them. So it's interesting that that's the data, but I, I would say that I suppose that data is probably from the perception of the traditional or at least the, the new sort of image of what a startup looks like, um, pr- pr- primarily from that prism of sort of tech startups, right, as opposed to just people start, you know, taking an entrepreneurial journey as a whole, because if, if that was the case, I'm sure that would be very different, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that probably has changed over the past 10 years, which is actually having like a side hustle or something you do on the side, which is entrepreneurial. I mean, that right. is far more popular than ever before. It's actually mm. something that you see across multiple backgrounds. But I, I think where the issue still is, is taking the step from side hustle to a you know, proper startup entrepreneur. That's the kind of chasm that exists that most people still yeah. want to yeah. jump over or can't jump over. So it, it, it's not like we don't have the right raw materials in the UK, that like we have naturally entrepreneurial people. It's just that the culture and structures that exist do not enable people to actually grow and scale businesses mm. from all backgrounds and, and that's where the problem really lies
2: yeah no 100 percent, i agree with you and also not not recognizing the opportunity that can lie in scaling right you know that, that and are, or how to even go about that um there's a lot of interesting people i've met who have you know amazing boring businesses right as they're often termed um who that are doing very well but they've they've sort of naturally sort of hit their peak um, I met a really interesting character. Actually, if you're going to watch any one of my previous episodes, I highly recommend watching the one with Ralph Hodgson. 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 Yeah. Um, who uh, window cleaner turned tech tech founder, implementing a tech solution into that industry, and it's just brilliant. You know, the journey going from that. I mean, that's a great example of working class uh, going into. of had the same challenges as you with you know friends and family sort of looking at it from this kind of odd perception. But that's a great example, I think, of how you can along the journey through understanding the landscape sort of push to the next level i think that's super interesting but yeah i mean it's a yeah it's a super interesting issue um and these needs to be solved so um yeah the reason why i was asking you about when you launched so you you mentioned about the sort of where you are now and and the amount of students that um are on the platform and and the sort of level of support and stuff they get so um what would you say i mean are you getting some good are you tracking the kind of results in some way to see the kind of the, the impact that is is having? And, and if you are, what is that looking like so far since that's sure. a couple of years like, ago, I guess? Like,
1: like a lot of tech companies are absolutely tyrannical about collecting high quality <laughs> right. robust data and, and, and doing that in a way which doesn't have an impact on, on users. And that, that may sound obvious in the tech startup sector, but in the kind of education sector and career sector we operate in, there's to been a real paucity of data over like ever since this industry's existed in all honesty, which is a lot of organizations just haven't bothered to actually define the outcomes they're trying to create and how you measure those. And yeah. I think mean, that's made it really difficult for people to actually learn what best practice looks like because the data collection piece has never been, been done. Mm. So so we don't just track you know, how many of our students get into top universities and how many of them access careers we go much deeper and we look at things like what is the relationship between certain features in our platform and changing people's success rates of getting into these institutions. And we've got really clear data now which shows, for instance, the link between mentorship and getting into university, which is if you do that you know, X number of sessions, that boosts your chance by X percent. And not only is that useful from a product point of view in terms of we know what works and know what doesn't, but it's also quite useful from a, a sort of brand marketing point of view because we can clearly tell students, look, if you complete five sessions on the platform, that's gonna boost your chance of getting into university by 20%. And that's Mm. a real um, motivating statistic if you can make that robust and back it up for a student. Mm. So I think data collection is very important and and we also do randomised control trials as well. Uh, So we partnered with UCAS, which is the, the application system for applying to university in the UK. What essentially they do is we give them our student data, they tell us what universities those students have got into, success rates, and so on and so forth. But they'll also create a control group in their platform of applicants who weren't on the zero-gravity platform, but statistically look very similar, similar backgrounds, similar grades, similar schools, mm. and they'll compile like with like, and that enables us to actually work out how big an effect are we having. Like when you control all of those things in the background, mm. How big is the effects of the platform? And, and that data is really important because it gives us a kind of scientific basis behind what we're doing. And, and that makes getting institutions on board much easier because we can say the results are not just kind of perceptible, but also statistically significant. That I think that's a kind of benchmark a lot of tech startups should try and get to, which is if, if you do have tens of thousands of users on your platform, it is possible to do statistically significant and that's not just useful from a product point of view, that data is so useful if you're partnering with any kind of like quite risk averse institution like if you're selling Mm. to enterprise clients I think it's absolutely a necessity because those guys want to see really robust data because partnering with a startup for them is actually laden with risk and if you can't prove to them that what you're doing actually really really does work it's going to be impossible to get them on board
2: yeah that's a really good point and it's, it's something that um i've had a few conversations with with uh founders in the past with like especially with it from a b2b perspective you know, when they're sort of in the early's days of getting traction, you know, bringing on board early adopters, to say, if you're going to be bringing in, let's say, selling to a specific team in a business, ask the business if you can also run a control group with with another team, uh, for for comparison, especially if it's like early access, you know, open beta or something like that, because then you have that comparison data. So it it is a bit more robust. So so what, um, what has surprised you the most out of running those kinds of tests in terms of the data?
1: A lot of the big trends that we saw were quite intuitive, like you know, the more time you spend on the platform, the higher your chance of breaking into these elite institutions. But we also identified other interesting things. So, for instance, we saw that your relative performance was a better indicator of getting into uh, top universities and your absolute performance, which is right. that if you take those people who are outperforming their peers, but might not look good on paper if you actually invest in giving those people support, you can create really dramatic changes in their outcomes. Because to use a football analogy, those people have kind of like, they've done all the build up play and knocked the ball around the field, but they just don't know how to kick the ball in the back of the net. And actually if you identify them and work with them, you can help them kick the ball in the back of the net nine out of 10 of the times. But whilst mm. people who are already absolute top performers know so their kind of unblemished academic records, those people are already knocking the ball in the back of the net five out of mm. ten times. So, so we found that and we really doubled down on trying to identify those people on the platform because those are the people we thought we could have the biggest uh, impact for. And we, we also saw interesting differences in geography as well. People often talk about the the students we try and support as socially mobile students, the people who are trying to... Um, that ascends from one background into another. But actually when you think about what that means, that includes sort of a second generation uh, immigrant living in a inner city tower block in London who goes to a good state school but is maybe in a difficult socioeconomic situation surrounded by gang violence. That includes someone like that. It also includes like a white working class girl living in the Welsh Valleys in a semi-detached house whose family are kind of just about managing but there's no like wealth there's no access to opportunity in their local area. Those two people's experiences are very, very different. And yet they're both labeled as kind of socially mobile. And one of the things we saw on the platform is you actually have to give people slightly different emphases on the support you give them depending on where they live. Like for the people who are living in like rural isolation or suburbia, actually bringing the opportunities to them rather than requiring them to find the opportunities is so much more important because Mm. they're, they're not in networks where those opportunities are kind of even like put in front of them. Whilst even if you're living in a really difficult circumstance in London, you're surrounded by a metropolis of opportunities. So, mm-hmm. like, you don't necessarily need opportunities exposed to you because you can see them. Like, you're literally probably getting like the tube past Canary Wharf every day. Yeah. It's just that like, you need help actually bagging them. But, like, the, the emphases of support people needs vary depending on their background. And, and we've seen that come through in the data. And, and that's how we've developed like personalization features into the platform. Give people a slightly different experience based on actually what their background is and to been able to continue to double down on that i think it's going to be increasingly important for us and, and that's why we're quite excited about artificial intelligence as well because i know people in tech have sort of fetishized ai and maybe people are slightly too optimistic about the pace of change but the opportunities we see are actually some of the low-hanging fruit things which is like taking some of our existing data sets and personalized features. And just like turning up a notch, using AI to turn something that used to be a kind of 10 part if-else statement into something that has you no know, ten thousand variables instead. And, and that's where I think AI can be transformative in edtech not in terms of like wide reaching radical change in the short term, just in terms of optimizing existing personalized features that are already built into products right now, but might be not as good as they could be. But that's where I see the real opportunity and how we've been using it.
2: Mm, yeah, uh, it's super interesting as well. Well, a couple of things you said there, um, not least about AI, but but yeah, super interesting what you mentioned there about the sort of those a couple of different profiles. Because one thing that I'd noticed, and I think we spoke about this before as well, throughout my career and, and especially in building remote first organizations, is I've always had this um, this concern. Let's say that uh, the job opportunities that I've been putting out there when I've been leading teams haven't been getting in front of everyone equally um and uh you know a big a big opportunity i see in the sort of remote landscape is that they should be it should be a complete democratisation of 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 uh, worker opportunities and and positions And one of the biggest challenges I found when I did manage to find ways of getting in, which wasn't perfect, but in front of, let's say, like that, that individual from a migrant family living in a town block in London, that's a great example. When I did manage to start speaking to a lot of these people, their next barrier was then literally their environment, right, the physicality of their environment, not having an area to, to be able to sit and concentrate and focus on work and, and, you know, not having a, you know a, a access to a library or, or the internet and like these kinds of things like do you find that those very physical and literal uh environmental barriers uh are things that are are having a, a, a profound effect and how are you able to solve them or are you not is that really where the sort of uh the limit of what you're able to do is that where it's reached and and, and you can't really do much about that?
1: I think that debate around remote working and what it means to access to opportunities is is actually really, really interesting. I I was Mm -hmm. looking at the figures coming out of the IFS last week that shows that remote working still hasn't reversed post-pandemic. I think most people in the UK in the service sector are still working uh, on average around three days a week from home. Uh, Things have normalized back in, in the sectors where people actually have to be, physically present right. to their job, but in the service sector, the, the things that have, have barely changed since since COVID. I, I think it's an interesting question to think, you know, what does that mean for the future of social mobility? I, I think it means a couple of things. I think the first thing, Greg, is is actually remote working is good in terms of it, it does break down some of the geographical barriers that you see with geographical mobility, which is most high paying jobs are based in London. I mean, outside London, they tend to be concentrated in cities like Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham. So if you are somebody who's based in suburbia, you can't afford to move to a big city or you don't want to lose your kind of family, friendship, uh, connections. No, remote is a great way to get access to high-paying jobs that you otherwise wouldn't be able to access. So that is where I think it does kind of level the playing field. But I think where remote working currently falls down massively is that I think businesses have still not worked out Actually, how to onboard, train, and create high performance employees in a remote environment? Because what I can that's, that's what my hear, startup
2: is. That, that's our problem statement. <laughs> well, well that, that,
1: there we go. But what I hear from young yeah. people all the time is they're moving into these remote slash hybrid environments, and that they're really struggling to actually become productive employees because mm. a lot of corporates have actually completed completely gutted corporate training programs over the past 30 years, but because retention is so low, a lot of them have kind of got into a vicious cycle where they haven't had the ROI to justify huge amounts of corporate training for people who only stay for 12 to 18 months. So there's no corporate training anymore. And that means most people are learning through the osmosis effects of watching people on the job. And if you can't do that remotely, how do you learn? And at the same time, to be completely honest, universities are not particularly good in terms of teaching people the behaviours and traits they need to succeed in the modern workplace. Let's give an obvious example. The behaviours which most students come out with at university is submitting work one minute before the deadline. And that is a behaviour which is an absolute car crash behaviour in a working environment where actually being really well organised, structuring your time efficiently, but doing things ahead of cycle rather than last minute is, is how you get results. So I I think there's a real challenge there in terms of how how do you create seductive, optimized team members in a remote culture and environment? And I think a lot of businesses haven't cracked that. I think that's gonna have a particularly big impact on people from low opportunity backgrounds who aren't able to purchase that training elsewhere, who don't necessarily get it through their network, not from their parents, not from their family members, because these people don't have professional jobs and, and can't afford to invest in the kind of educational resources that help Help do that. So I think that's a massive challenge that businesses are going to have to try and solve if they want to Mm. stay remote. Otherwise, I think we're going to see people revert back in into into the office over the next five years, and and that will be painful because I think a lot of employees have internalized remote as a kind of like workers' right. So I think if corporates do want to do that, we're going to end up with this kind of like bosses versus employees Mm -hmm. tension that continuing to be there for the next five years. And I don't think that's good for for anyone, so yeah, I think remote is great in terms of democratizing where you can do opportunities from. It doesn't necessarily deliver the results in terms of actually giving people the kind of career growth and progression they need by making them productive remote employees. I think that's the the, the nutshell of everything that's going on.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and as I mentioned, it's it's definitely you know that that is our main problem statement for the startup that uh, my myself, my co founder put forward and from from an ed tech perspective, right? This idea that that skills need to be tracked. But anyway, it's not all about me. I'm, I'm just, yeah, it's just an interesting problem. And, and I see the the sort of crossover there. Because like that, you know, the yeah the sort of main thing I was interested in, in asking you that question was more about this idea of, you know, where where are you noticing the limits of what you're able to to touch uh, students' lives on. Um, and I guess in, you know, physical environment and the, the handicaps that could maybe come with certain physical environments, I suppose, could be one of those barriers, right? There's only so much you're able to provide through uh, through the platform and through the, the, the sort of services and features you provide there. Um, so that that's that must be quite frustrating, although although maybe there is a solution to that. I don't know. I mean, maybe you already do solutions to that. I mean, do, do you do anything with any kind of co-working spaces or anything to try and set, help solve those those issues maybe?
1: There is a big divide in terms of access to a good physical environment and also good desktop infrastructure, but where there is actually a level playing field is an access to smartphones. 99% of young people in the UK have access to a smartphone device and in the UK now has near-perfect 4G coverage in pretty much every urban and suburban area. So I actually think when people are trying to solve this from a product point of view, you want to focus on where the hardware is actually democratized. And that does tend to be in the smartphone market. So Mm -hmm. I I will be encouraging businesses to actually look at now: how do you train people through, through smartphones instead of always relying on desktop technology. I I know for instance, McDonald's has a very famous and successful training program for all of their new employees, which they run almost exclusively through like TikTok style uh, videos, which you can consume through your smartphone. And when you think about it, McDonald's is actually one of the most successful training businesses of all time, because they have such a you know, high churn of, uh, of staff. Now, maybe you've got managers who stay there for a while, but the most of the staff in the McDonald's they won't stay in the McDonald's for a long period of time, because it tends to be you no know, students or people looking for part-time work before they get into something else. So actually how you train those people quickly and get them into productive workers in a, in a quick cost efficient way is, is the nutshell of their business. And and they found a way to do that, almost through purely mobile-based content. And I I think that's the direction businesses need to to move into. Like, how do you create content which young people genuinely want to engage with? Because when you actually look at the data, young people spend more time on their smartphones nowadays per week, more screen time than they do in the classroom. So actually, if you try to do everything classroom-based, you're actually missing the place where most people are spending their time. And are most deeply engaged so it, it, it maybe it's a quite a mundane insight but i think finding a way to deliver content through mobile phones rather than desktop and in formats that young people instinctively engage with like is the is the future and some businesses have cracked that but i think a lot aren't thinking about it in that way whatsoever
2: yeah you're absolutely right It, it that bring, um brought my mind back to the height of the pandemic when uh, a lot of parents suddenly were it was thrust upon us to suddenly be homeschooling our kids and um, I'm fortunate enough to have technology and have a bit of disposable income where I can buy stuff and we have laptops and so on but a lot of parents don't have laptops or tablets and, and stuff so they were kind of screwed and you know we're, we're not just talking like you know small kids teenagers too you know pa- you know parents with teenagers and all sorts where they have to do a lot of work on devices and they're being told by the school well, you have to do it all online and they were in a real um, predicament. And so I did a bit of googling, and very quickly found that there are some little devices you can get for like ten quid um, that act as a dock for a mobile device. And provided it's Android, actually, it, it, no, no, yeah, for Android and iOS, um, you plug it in, you can attach a keyboard and a monitor, and then you've got a computer because most phones go into like a desktop mode, especially Android. Um, and I did a little bit of research, sent this out to a few people in my network who you know run schools and things like that. Um, and they were able to send that advice out, and apparently it really, really helped. You know, for a very small amount. And they were even, because a lot of them were, you know, trying to buy laptops or, or get donations to then give them out. They were finding that this much cheaper solution was just, a, yeah. To your point, everyone has a mobile, um, and it's not being fully utilised. So that was a, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, So look. Take me back a little bit because I'm I'm really interested in the journey uh, that you've been through. And you, you you mentioned a bit in the bit that we cut out at the beginning. beginning <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about um, how you're kind of wrapping up your investment round and stuff like that. So so since the beginning, you know, talk me through t- talk me through the bit of the journey. So you know, you, you come up with the idea straight out of uni, which by the way, you studied PPE in, in Oxford Uni, right? Yeah, so not so political.
1: Yeah, so it's philosophy, politics, economics. Um, yeah. which, which I used to shorthand PPE, but now most people think that's personal protective equipment. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 I have to do the long <laughs> form now instead, so people yeah. don't get confused. Um, but yeah. so not not a technical degree, but I, I was self-taught when it came to technical skills because I was a digital native growing up. I mean, I was also obsessed with the web and you know, building things, and I taught myself right. how to do front-end development, uh, design websites, you know, social oh, wow. media. And so I, I got quite a lot of those those skills from outside the formal education sector and, and they kind of served me well when I started Zero Gravity because I think to be a sole founder, you do essentially have to become someone who's able to acquire and deploy skills very quickly. Yeah. Because right. at you, that point You need you,
2: to be a generalist, right?
1: Yeah, you need, need to be the kind of consummate generalist because you don't mm-hmm. have the capital to scale yourself yet. So you have to do everything and and in many ways, you have to focus on how to optimize your own performance before you think about how to optimize the, the business. So I actually think when, when people are starting off a company, the kind of content and books you should be reading isn't necessarily books about kind of grand strategy and vision. It should be books about optimizing your own performance. like Something like Atomic Habits is probably a better book to read as a kind of sole mm, founder than I, anything I that's been written. More than anything that's been written by a, kind of, you know, Peter Thiel or a, or a startup guru. But once you get through those early stages, that's when that other stuff then becomes far more important. And it took me around you know, 18 months to break out of that first stage. I mean, I, I raised some pre-seed funding and the way I was able to do that is I essentially created a flywheel of kind of organic social media and PR that brought a bunch of people into my orbit who otherwise I would never be able to access. And because the the business I was growing had such a clear mission behind it, breaking that link between background and opportunity. The creating that flywheel was much easier because I had a mission-driven brand which resonated with issues that people really cared about. Mm -hmm. Issues like class, inequality, fairness, who gets access to these elite opportunities. And most people care about those things and will have a conversation about it down the pub. So it it wasn't that difficult to create a flywheel of social media content and PR what that did was create an opportunity magnet, which brought these people into my orbit. So I was able to raise just under half a million of pre-seed funding. And I used that essentially just to scale myself, hire three or four other generalists like me who wanted to work in startups, were good at acquiring new skills and deploying them. And we just used that to scale the business in the early stages. And then once we had some really good you no know, signs of growth, solid traction, you no know, user numbers, early clients, uh, good usage of the platform, that's when we then started to hire more specialists. You no, know, like build an in-house tech team led by our CTO. You know, build a proper brand team led by our chief brand officer. But that it took around you no know, no three years to get to that point. So we're, nowadays we've got twenty five team members working out of our office in central london but that, that's been a journey of sort of moving from step to step from a, a one-person business to a four-person business to a 12-person business and now a 25 person business so it, it's almost like a uh, you want to double each step and h- how big the time interval is between doubling might look different depending on you know, the uniqueness of your business and on what you're doing but but each step has a, a unique set of set of challenges it's like like nowadays like i don't need to think too much about kind of like skill acquisition because I have the ability to hire the specialists in different areas of the business. So where I do really need to concentrate my time is on things like, you know, strategy, the building the right culture to help people f- uh, thrive, the hiring in a really skillful way. And those are things that didn't really matter too much when we were you know, a one-man one band, course, uh, but yeah. do really matter now. So I, I think it's you, you're a bit like a Pokemon if you're a founder. You have to go on the journey of of evolution. It's the kind of Charmander that you were when you first started is yeah. not the kind of Charizard that you need to be when you get to the a uh, uh, latter stage of the journey.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good analogy that not everyone will get, but it's yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Like, how how did you find that, especially that that shift from from really being the jack of all trades that you know the, the generalist specialist, if you want to call it founder to suddenly having the resources at your disposal, you your disposable to run a team and suddenly running a team like, I often speak with founders in that particular, who have gone through that, and they say that that is the most challenging part of the entire journey. And, and, and I think most would have not assumed that to be the case, given the, the, the sort of various challenges along the way. How did you deal with that sudden shift in essentially what your job description was, right?
1: I think when you're an early stage startup founder, you're always going to feel like you don't have enough resource. Like when I was a one-man band in my bedroom, I I felt like I didn't have enough resource when I literally didn't have a pound to my name. And now I agree like a multi-million pound budget with the board every year. I still don't feel like I've got enough resource. So you're always going to feel resource constrained. And and actually, you have to reconceptualize that constraint as, as not always a bad thing, but a good thing which is being constrained is actually the thing that creates innovation. Like if you have limitless resources, you've got no incentive to really try out new ways of doing things, no simplify processes, make them more efficient, to find ways to do more with less. Like that, that incentive structure doesn't work if you have limitless resources. So actually being resource constrained is a necessary precondition. Of, of innovation, and and that's the beauty of being in a startup—the constraint. So you, you've got to try and hire people who appreciate constraint and actually love it, and and that's why I do think there is a particular type of person who really thrives in a startup environment. That person who who is willing to kind of run towards danger, to try new things, who's able to take accountable for their kind of outcomes, even though they don't necessarily have a vast amount of resources to put those outcomes into into reality you need someone who like really loves that process rather than somebody who feels restricted by it yeah i think a lot of people who who spent a lot of their career working in big corporates where you do sometimes feel like you've got near limitless resource almost get kind of trained out of that mentality that you need to to succeed so i i do think there are certain types of people who thrive more in a startup environment than others and i think any startup needs to think about that deeply in their hiring process Mm. and how do you really tease that out because I think a lot of people default to looking for things like skills and experience, but I think in a startup, actually your mentality and your like values fit the organization is even more important than those things. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's better to have a kind of 80% good team member when it comes to a skills perspective who is completely keyed in to your mission, your values, the mentality and way of doing things, and a 100% person who doesn't know what it's like to operate in a startup and doesn't buy into that mentality because that second person, even though they're technically proficient will just be a nightmare for you. At every, every one to one meeting, it'll be the same list of complaints. So I don't have enough resources to do this or do that, or I need X amount of money. You need people who are able to see past that and appreciate the constraint and do more with less. And that is not an easy thing to find. I think it's the most important thing in any hiring process.
2: You're absolutely right. The, the the key personality difference that I found over the years with people who are made for startup work, let's say, are those that just prioritize coming to you with solutions rather than problems, essentially. That they're, they're always looking for the solution and not, not just to highlight what the you know the issue is with something um before you know before they've even completely analyzed what the problem is they've already found five solutions like that's the kind of introvert yeah i' understand and i think there's a really important point you mentioned there about the sort of value alignment too right because the value alignment goes beyond just the value alignment of the business itself but also as individuals like your your own your own personal and cultural alignments because you're working very close with one another at these early stages and if you don't actually align on a personal value basis then you're probably going to strangle each other right like you need to have some agreement on on the basis and foundation of you know Whatever it is, shared morality or or, or, or you know, you know, society, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, social values, et cetera. Like those are important things to have.
0: If you are enjoying this episode and want to support the show, please like and subscribe with notifications turned on.
2: And even while you were explaining that as well, it even made me think back to what you were saying a minute, earlier on in the, uh, this conversation about sort of where, you, you know, your, your roots, right? Coming from a working class family and, and, and all that. And what you said about, you know, the constraints of uh, of that and not having all the resources available to you breeds innovation. Like that's, that's exactly, I think, what you see from a lot of um, innovative founders with that kind of background, too, is actually their startups tend to be a lot more innovative anyway, right? Um, they're not going to just try and replicate the success of the other thing that's out there, like a lot of um, those from affluent backgrounds tend to do. Yeah, I, th- I think
1: people sometimes use a quite wanky phrase of having a growth mindset. i don't don't, don't particularly like the (laughs) phrase but i I get what they mean though but yeah i
2: I think i
1: think think, think, think the idea is correct which is even if you're resource constrained or even if you're from a tricky background and you've had a really difficult upbringing seeing yourself as a victim is actually the most entrapping thing that Mm. you can you can do you can do and the, the world isn't fair and there's some people have it much easier than others. That's just the way things are, unfortunately. But the only thing you can do to overcome it is actually by reconceptualizing your background and your constraints as the kind of driving force of your life. So I, I when I was growing up in a single parent family, I had a lot of you know, family issues when I was younger, which I won't go into, but I, I kind of always you know, saw myself maybe as a little bit of a victim. I was like, oh, no, why can't I have you no know, perfect no, two loving parents um, in in a family situation, and everything's fine at home. Like, why do I have this kind of anxiety and these issues mm. hanging over me as a young person? That's not fair. But what i kind of realized in later life, which is actually some of that childhood trauma I have, it created the kind of fundamental values and beliefs that have created a lot of my personal growth to date. Like to be a founder, for instance, you need to have crazy levels of resilience. Like you mm. need to be adaptable. You need to be able to take gut punch after gut punch every day of the week because growing a business is really hard and difficult and actually if you're from a background or you've experienced significant trauma and you've been able to work through that and overcome it you've got resilience in spades you've got all the things you need to be a a founder so i think reconceptualizing some of the bad things that have happened to you and some of the traumas as, as positive things which you can actually use to empower yourself i think is really important and that, that's certainly the kind of value set that we try and uh, cultivate in the members on our platform. They're seeing their, their background as their competitive advantage rather than a limiting factor. But I also think that's important for the culture of a startup as well. You almost want that kind of siege mentality of it's us against the world. But we have the kind of the magic source or the ability to kind of do things that other people can't do with our amount of resources. That's the kind of culture you want to cultivate and you want people who live and and breathe that. And, and that's why I do think you need to be tyrannical about your culture, because if your entire team exudes that energy, it becomes self-reinforcing. If you have a couple of people who are kind of sniping in the backgrounds, who don't buy into it, who think it's all a bit hard and tricky, even if those people are kind of like, you know, technically right and they can like analyze the situation, actually point out why it's really difficult and hard and why it's kind of rational to think like that, from a cultural point of view, those people are actually incredibly toxic. So you, you don't necessarily want kind of like Smart people have kind of told you so. People, you want people who are kind of slightly deluded because they buy into the mission behind what you're doing, and they kind of have a the ability, whether it's kind of naive optimism or just pure pluckiness, to make stuff happen with little resources. and And those people are completely invaluable in a startup, even if they're not the most technically highly skilled people in the world. That mentality will get you much further than the most skilled mm. person will.
2: And and I think you can have a balance of that too, right? You can still have those individuals who are extraordinarily positive and resilient and and you know, buy into the vision, but also can point out the flaws in the plan. Um, but but again, coming to it with like, we need to do this, you know, as opposed to just whining and complaining and sitting there and pointing it out. And I think there's a there's a very clear difference. Cause like you said, one is one is absolutely just toxic, regardless of whether they're right or not. It's how you go about it. Um, and what are you aiming to or proposing to do about it versus uh, someone coming in and see, seeing a hole in the ship and saying, let's plug it, right? Or, or even better, just having plugged it and saying, I plugged it, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what but you want, you, want, want. you
1: want people who are delusional about solutions, not delusional about problems. So you, you're right, you, you want people who can diagnose problems and don't stick their head in the sand, but you want people who can come up with solutions, even ones which are are really tricky and maybe have a statistically low chance of working, but mm. find a way over time to make them work. So find people who are delusional about solutions, not delusional about problems. Actually, having people who are delusional about problems is also something you don't need in the startup. You need people who are rigorous, holding themselves and others accountable, and mm. don't get complacent. Because in a startup, once you've solved one problem, there's always a new one. That gets created so you need people who can accurately diagnose those things but who who don't take that diagnosis so far that they think that a problem is intractable and impossible yeah. to solve
2: yeah or not there at all right because there there are a lot of those delusional individuals you talk about I, I i i won't name any names but i've been a few founders like that right who who are, who, are, who are so bought into their into their what's the word um sort of the vision that they've or perception that they've created from a cultural perspective that they're not prepared to 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 uh, admit some of the fundamental flaws in their thinking or the business and that's that's obviously quite a dangerous way of going about things too that's leading people off the cliff as it were
1: yeah i think probably quite a controversial opinion but i, I think that's why so many founders to be honest end up with like mental health problems at some mm. part of their journey or maybe at the end because To actually be a founder, I I do think you have to have quite a like schizophrenic mentality in a way. Where you kind of you have to be like so delusional that you think you can be that one percent who solves a problem that the ninety nine percent can't solve, and you have to have a complete kind of clarity and energy pointing towards a vision that can feel very far away. And yet, at the same time, you have to be that person who can get down the weeds in the short term, diagnose problems, be hyper rational, and kind of fix things. And Mm -hmm. splitting between those two mentalities of kind of like long termism, delusional optimism, clear vision, but also just a short termism of being able to get stuff done, doing that day in, day out, I think can mentally break a lot of people because it it does require like utilizing like some very, very different mental frameworks, in many ways, in like psychological tension with one another. So it it is an incredibly demanding job, and, and that's why I do honestly believe that the number one skill you need is resilience, which is why I think it's surprising that there's not more founders from working class backgrounds, because I think naturally you get more resilience from being in that environment, which makes me think that the reason why that is the case is due to structural weaknesses in actually getting capital to the right people and enabling entrepreneurs from from all backgrounds. I don't think it's anything to do with the inherent talents and traits that people have. If anything, that Uh, should advantage low income founders.
2: No, absolutely. That and maybe what you were saying about the appetite for risk, there's more to lose, you know, maybe maybe in in those scenarios. And I think that's a very sensible way of looking at it. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of contradiction in being a founder. Um, I mean, just the simple one of, you know, trying to maintain a a long term sort of uh, big picture vision of things while also focusing on getting the small picture stuff done. Like that's that in itself is a very difficult thing to try and explain to someone when they ask you, what do you do on a daily basis? Um, uh, from, from the perception of running, a, being a founder and running a business, like that's an incredibly difficult thing, you know, as we've mentioned, your job over the years has changed, uh, to some degree as most founders, uh, roles do as they grow, but there's always that certain level and you do get a little bit more big picture, but there's always that certain level of, you know, attention to granular detail that you're always going to keep a hold of you. And those two things are at odds from a mindset perspective, you're shifting between them and that can, that can, you know, make your head spin just that alone. And I would add another thing that you, you 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 and the things that you mentioned as well is trying to continually ensure that you have a um, a good sense of self, right, and being being self reflective and and self aware, like all while trying to maintain everything else you mentioned. I mean that adds a whole other la- layer to everything too that can really screw you. <laughs> screw you exactly.
1: Up. It's like it's <laughs> like if you're a founder, like especially if your product is tied to a mission which is true to your personal story you end up becoming the spokesperson for your business. And in many ways, in the early days, you are the brand. And, mm. and to be able to do that effectively, you need very clear messaging that resonates with your core audience. And you need to like, repeat that time and time again. Like, you almost become like a stuck record player. And <laughs> that can affect your sense of self because you, you start telling yourself a narrative, which hopefully is true to your authentic self. But, but it does become a narrative that just you you become quite instinctive at trotting out, and you have to be able to do that whilst at the same time being self reflective enough to see the holes in your narrative and where you can do better as a person. So I now I, I do stuff now, and I'll start off every conversation by saying you know, I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire and single parent family. My mum's a speech therapist, and all that stuff's true. But it's, it's almost becomes um it almost becomes instinctive trotting that narrative out, and I have to find a way to balance that and telling the kind of story of the zero gravity brand from my own personal story, or still being reflective on actually, now how can I do a better job? Like, how can I understand my background in a better way to help me out in the short term? Like, where are my weaknesses as a person? Like, which, which parts of our mission actually need refinement and don't like mm. fully make sense? I and mean, being able to do those two things, you're right. It is intention, it's contradictory and, and hard. And it, you know, it takes a certain type of person who's willing to do that. Um,
2: It's exactly why I I think it's no surprise that so many people are put off by this idea of entrepreneurialism or being a startup founder, because there's so much the information available out there is contradictory by its very nature. And I'm, I'm on record as saying you know there's just a lot of shit out there and the thing is i don't think it's because it's bad intention shit it's just because there's a lot of it there's a lot of people talking about their experiences or their peripheral experiences of entrepreneurial uh ship and 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 yeah and and if it's already coming with built-in you know contradiction then it's no wonder that it's confusing for most people, no least maybe sort of more working class uh, people from working class backgrounds. If they're looking at that, they're just like, well, none of this makes any sense. How do I even know where to start? It's so one of the reasons why I do what I do is to try and help people from all kinds of backgrounds and kind of just eliminate the shit and go, do you know what all of that stuff you read in those books that like you were saying about, you know, don't go get too ahead of yourself and read all that nonsense first. It's like actually keep it focused right now just on this one step that you can take and just keep it nice and simple, because I think you get in the weeds on that it can, it can mess over your head and and puts you off before you even get going. And I think in this case, ignorance can be bliss,
1: right? Yeah. And I think like TikTok, for instance, I think can be such a great bite-sized educational resource. But Mm. when I think about who's got the loudest voices on those platforms when it comes to entrepreneurship, it tends to be your kind of like megastars like your Elon Musk's, your Richard Bransons or your Jeff Bezos, who are incredibly inspirational leaders who you can learn a lot from. But in, because they're so big and they run big enterprises, they're so divorced nowadays from the kind of problems that you face starting a bootstrapped right. early stage company that yeah, even though their advice is useful it's a distant memory. Even though their advice is useful, it's it's not likely to be relevant. So like 50% of the stuff you're seeing is useful but not relevant. And I mean, the other 50% of, of stuff that tends to be from like influencers who've crossed over into entrepreneurship who often try and sell people a dream despite actually never having created a sustainable growing business themselves and from those stuff you get from those people you get stuff that's more relevant but not necessarily useful so i i, I think that's where the content on platforms like TikTok can be quite difficult uh to find the good stuff for early stage entrepreneurs so you really have to dig in and try and find it and i think the best people to look to are people who are just kind of one or two steps ahead of you on the journey mm. the people who faced your problems two or three years ago and actually have overcome them. Like that's the kind of content you want to be consuming. So if you're a bootstrapped founder, you probably want to be you know, looking for entrepreneurs at a similar stage to where I am, because I, I went through that stage three or four years ago. and that, and I'm, I'm now out of it. Whilst for people like me, I probably want to be finding people who are, have created you no know, series B, C companies, or like you know profitable tech startups that have you know, managed to become one of the, the leading companies in their in their sort of niche of the tech industry. Because that is the stage, which is you no know, one or two steps ahead of where I am. So I think you have to evolve the creators that you look to, depending on what stage of the journey you're at. But but don't seek out gurus or kind of purveyors of wisdom because often they're they're either fake, like those influencers or they're too far the force from the reality, like your Musk's mm. and your Bezos's. No, don't find gurus, try and find normal people who are like you were three or four years ago.
2: And this is exactly why, I mean, for two things. First, I, you know, I think it's fair to say all founders unanimously agree on the, on the, the importance of networking and especially going to events where you can meet other founders and entrepreneurs for that exact reason. But also one of the main driving forces behind me creating this show. Which is that, you know, I found that, uh, A, I take great joy and inspiration talking to people like you. Um, but also I know a lot of other people can get a lot more from it. And I think what I agree that there there is potential in the platform of TikTok um, to an extent. I also believe that context is really important. And like what you were just saying a minute ago about how, you know, you are in some ways, you know, sort of almost going... Off, off you know straight onto script as soon as you get going it's, it's maybe because it, you know again also for you you've, you've not been given the, the breathing room that this show I think allows for these kind of conversations to take place where actually you don't need to fit it all into 10 minutes and do a pitch and go off stage or whatever the whole point is I think that th- this allows for the op- opportunity to to get into the nuance of things a little bit more and understand that there isn't a perfect way of doing it and ultimately it's messy just like living a fucking life is uh you know it's messy and everyone has their own ways of doing it and figuring it out here's some lessons that you learn we can share uh might be useful might not be you know what i mean and i think and i think that's important about this so that's why i kind of like long form content in that for that reason because i think it, it allows for nuance. ones you know essentially which is sorely lacking i think in a lot of these conversations which are just trying to fit in 60 seconds how can you make a million pounds you know it's like yeah, there's a bit more yeah. to it than that you know
1: <laughs> I, I think i think long form is kind of like the the primary piece of content you create can be a really great way to create genuinely reflective conversations mm-hmm. although kind of what i've seen is that even the best long-form content the main way people consume it is through short form, right? If I think about, the, I think about the, some of the best podcasts today, like you know, Joe Rogan, Diver CEO, I like the this, Huberman this, podcast, this, um, which this one here, the, the Huberman podcast, which I know has is gone viral in the UK in the past couple of months. Most people actually interact with those podcasts through kind of bite-sized, five-minute clips, and that the, the long form yeah. is there for people to consume, but people still want the short form. So it, it's it's almost like how do you create? you create a primary piece of content, which is reflective and then cut that into digestible bits, which people can, can sort of, uh, come and consume and they've got five minutes to, to spare it. I do think that is the, that's the fundamental content challenge.
2: Yeah, you're, you absolutely right. And that's exactly what, what we do on, on this as well is, um, you know, we have an editor, that the creates clips out of each show and, and that's all, you know, YouTube shorts and TikTok and stuff. And, and it acts as both, uh, hopefully entertaining and educational in its own right, but then also a, yeah, a window into coming and discovering a full episode, which seems to be working. I mean, it's a marketing strategy above anything else, but it, but it obviously provides hopefully some value on its own. But yeah, that's a really good point. I I think, you know, I used to watch a lot of Joe Rogan, for example, full episodes late at night when I had the time and didn't maybe have, you know, the responsibilities I have now. But in reality, now I'll be lucky if I watch a 10 minute clip on YouTube you know, of something that I come across because, yeah, I mean, it's not easy to always find the time for a full two, three hour podcast, especially when, you know, the majority of it is them smoking and drinking. <laughs> and
1: you <Yeah>. know, it... <laughs> But the 10 minutes clips are so good though, right? Because the longer form does make the guests talk in a different way to if they were right. interviewed in a different style of, of podcast. I mean, that's why it's yeah. content is so great.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Which I mean, like, I like, uh, uh, Was it diary of a CEO? Um, but I do find some, some of it and I'll be honest, I haven't watched loads of his, um, stuff. Um, but some of it, it, it comes across as quite robotic, um, like very traditional interview style. Um, but you know, it's, it's great in its own right. And he, he gets some amazing guests on, but, uh, but yeah, I think, Anyway,
1: I, th- I think, I think with, I think with that show that they've just become experts at distribution, haven't they? Like yeah. our, their, their marketing team, I think are doing, uh, incredible job and i listened to some bits of content about how every single episode they will uh, test 100 different thumbnails for the episode Mm -hmm. goes live so that they will use ad spend on facebook to test the thumbnails and essentially see which ones have the highest click-through rate so i think with podcasts like that everything is optimized for distribution Mm and to, to have something that's very distributable like the core product does need to be decent at the end of the day but, but i don't think that's their number one concern whilst i think joe rogan for instance like actually the distribution like isn't isn't that great like if you look at the thumbnails on most rogan clips like they're pretty pretty rubbish it's just like him with like a, yeah. a cuban cigar in his mouth or something so and that, yeah, that, yeah. i mean the success of that podcast is less about having an incredible distribution team it's more about just the the quality of the the content so i think you can get to the same outcome through different lenses but i think that's probably why some content seems more robotic than others
2: right yeah that makes sense yeah i mean that must be nice being in that sort of position to be able to spend that much money on uh, on testing 100 or so different thumbnails maybe one day i'll get there but, uh, but you know for yeah. now for now i'll keep the i'll i'll, I'll have the limited resources as a, 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 a to to inspire me to to make innovation i guess but um yeah so um yeah, you, so let's let's go back a couple of steps. And so you, you, you pre-seed, um, wh- when was that? When did you get your pre-seed funding? Uh, uh,
1: early 2020, j- just before 2020. the pandemic
2: struck, thankfully. Great timing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> so, it, it so, kind of feels like something goes wrong though every time we do a funding round, which is we did our pre-seed, um, COVID struck uh, just as we were closing. Like, we did our seed round and the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, war broke out. And doing this round, you've got all the Israel, uh, Hamas stuff. So it's like there's, it's kind of like a geopolitical event that seems to rupture every time you are uh, doing funding rounds. And I, I so, do actually think right. there's, a, there's a lesson in that for founders, which is if you are raising money from the private markets, you are also exposed to the general macroeconomic climate. So mm. like getting your timing right is, is actually quite important. And it's you know, difficult to forecast what's going to go on in the world but you also do need to appreciate that it's really difficult to raise money in a difficult macroeconomic climate and you do need to somehow try and calibrate your funding rounds around that if you can
2: mm. my, my main takeaway from that was just that you need to stop raising if you will, have any hope for no major new events occurring in the world because you seem to be the primary cause <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: a bit, it's a bit like i'm not sure if you remember when aaron ramsey played for arsenal every time he scored like a prominent celebrity died the day afterwards. And he like scored 10 times and every single time. It was a death definite day afterwards. So that's kind of what our funding rounds feel like a little bit at the moment.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, what what do your last point, though, about, um about the something to be aware, you know, for founders to be aware of in relation to the sort of wider socio economic state of the world, what could be done to kind of mitigate that risk? Is that the case of just maybe diversifying the uh, maybe the geography, the geographical spread of some of your private investments, or you know, wh- wh- how would you maybe go about mitigating some of that, uh, or, or or at least reducing some of that potential risk?
1: Do you think? Well, you, you can't control the macroeconomic environment, but you can control what happens in your own business. So, yeah. number one piece of advice would be to create the best business you can, because that is the thing that's fundamentally going to affect your ability to, to fundraise. But what you can do when it comes to macro environment is actually just be clued up about what's going on. And you can use that to influence the timing, which is like, if you see that you're going into a sticky economic period, maybe it makes sense to raise as much funding as possible now. So you have three years to kind of let the world recalibrate and people figure stuff out. If you're living for a good time, then maybe you take the kind of opportunity to raise capital at a high valuation but understanding that there's a likelihood that you're going to dip in the economic cycle and actually growing into that valuation might be much, much trickier in a couple of years' time. So so you can't control the macroeconomic environment, but you can be clued up about it and that can help you with decision-making. I think this is where a lot of founders have, have kind of gone wrong over the last couple of years because we've lived through a kind of boom time of VC capital uh, from kind of, you no know, 2018 to 2021. And lots of companies have raised you know, huge rounds of funding at incredibly sky high valuations. And even though that can be great in terms of you know, founder ego and kind of your net worth on paper, that being the best decision for your business is is not always um, subject to the same same method of evaluation, which is actually if you if you raise lots of money now at sky high valuation, you're not gonna be able to raise your next round of funding unless your business is able to grow into that and they justify that valuation. And if you're moving into a more difficult macroeconomic period, that's going to become tougher and tougher. So there is a trade off there between raising capital at a high valuation to stop yourself being diluted and actually creating a long term sustainability for your business and raising lots of money now at a sky high valuation makes it much more difficult to do that in two or three years time. And I, I think that is a kind of addiction a lot of founders have, have fallen into this idea that they can just keep raising and raising and raising ever more funding at ever f- higher valuation. I think that kind of uh, dream has come to a, a resounding end now. And People have realized, actually, it's not just all about raising capital. It's about doing as much as you can with what you've got. And, mm. and maybe always a higher valuation is not always a good thing. That means you can't raise more money in two or three years time. I think that's a big lesson for a lot of people who, who probably weren't even thinking about those conversations a couple of years ago. They were just thinking about how to maximize the amount they could raise.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you're obviously right. And, and it's, and obviously it's been a, it's been tough. We've seen a lot of companies, um, uh, you know, disappear as a result, unfortunately, and a lot of people lose their jobs and so on. But on the flip side, I think we we can all agree that there are some, there's some silver linings to it. None, not, not, not least, uh, Again, going back to what you were saying about the, 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 the less resources you have at your disposal, the more innovative you tend to be, seeing less uh, organisations with poor economics sort of baked into the business idea, being funded and essentially being propped up by funding. Uh, they were doomed to fail. So we're not even seeing them really get off the ground in the first place, which I think helps everyone. Right. Because from an economic perspective, seeing not seeing those businesses get brought into the market in the first place is a good thing for the economy as a whole and to to be prioritizing businesses with more uh, you know, structured and and better sort of economic foundations is, is good for, as a whole for job security, for for the economy as a whole. So I think there are definitely some silver linings to it, but it does beg the question, like, you know, just like you used the word addiction there from a founder's perspective on funding, like, you know, when it comes to addicts, someone's got to sell the shit in the first place. Right. And they're the ones that that, that ultimately where a lot of the blame should lie. Um, so I think it's also what I'm noticing at least as well with my investor contacts, maybe you, you may be noticing the same thing. I don't know. You can, you can let me know is that there seems to be, um, I, am noticing a lot of founders, uh, creating their own firms. Now a lot of, uh, or, or a lot of, uh, you know, partners who are part of other firms that have net since fallen apart, um, taking a very new and fresh approach to the way that VC has done essentially. And I think about time, you know, uh, they're prioritizing very different things uh expecting very different things from growth and and how they're and how they're measuring success and i think that can only be a good thing are, are, you, are you have you sort of come across much of that are you getting much of the similar sense to me or am i kind of living in my own little world do you think
1: no it's, it's a big decision for us because we, we've raised all our funding to date from kind of angel investors and mm. a lot of our angel investors are ultra high Net worth. Like we have a number of um, billionaires on our cap table and a lot of rich people who are sort of writing institutional size check sizes, but they, they don't behave as institutions. Mm. One of the key uh, choices for us was do we try and raise VC funding or do we continue to try and raise funding from uh, socially impact minded angel investors and other sources? Actually, at this point of our journey, we chose not to go down the the VC route because I, I thought we could build a, a better business and you know, a better setup for the long term if, if we didn't do that at this point of our journey. Because even though the VC route is often being celebrated as the, the best way you grow and scale a business, founders have to appreciate that it's not an approach that suits everyone. And actually it's laden mm-hmm. with with risk because the VC model, as, as those who operate this industry know about, is a, a VC will almost have 10 no chips on the table they'll like invest one chip per company and they need one of those companies to be a runaway success and they don't mind if the other nine of them fail and that that model works for vcs but doesn't necessarily work for founders because it's great if you're that founder who who runs that company that's a runaway success but what about those other nine companies that fail as a result of sort of chasing vc style growth whilst not actually being a company that is set up to to be able to have that that model so I, I i think the vc model has has skewed a lot of founders from growing businesses that could have maybe have been profitable had they grown a bit slower in a slightly different shape but by chasing vc style growth at all costs they, they've bankrupted their their organizations mm-hmm. so what, what one that springs to mind is a lot of our developers um, all of our developers are ruby on rails developers and one of the biggest uh, employers of ruby on rails developers in london a couple of years ago was was Hopin, which was like a, a video uh streaming uh startup which was valued at a couple of billion pounds um during the during the pandemic and 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 they essentially have, have disappeared into oblivion i think they sold off their assets for 50 million pounds um last year um despite having reached a valuation of billions during the pandemic and And that was a business which was was growing quickly. Um, they maybe could have been profitable, but because it was sort of chasing the VC growth curve, no growth at all costs, I think just overextended and got into got into trouble. And there's hundreds of businesses you can name like that over the past Mm. couple of years that could have been profitable, sustainable businesses, but because they chased too high a growth curve, and they're trying to become that kind of VC success story, have run themselves into a ground. and, And often that is not a good story for the founders who 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 lose the company that they they built up so to always understand if you're taking vc money you're not necessarily making a deal with the devil but you are making a particular type of deal which might not be the best long-term decision for your company Mm -hmm. and then that's something that you've got to grapple with
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because of the the, the agreement essentially is you you must now exponentially scale this business at a rate that you've absolutely not experienced or very unlikely to have experienced in any way prior to that. And that's, you know, like we talked about, the sort of culture shock that comes with the change of role as a CEO from being a generalist to now running a team and having more traditional, you know, CEO responsibilities, I guess you could say. I mean, that's just accelerated times fucking 10 by with that. Like that's that's an insane uh amount of cultural shock that's going to occur there. Not to mention the fact that for a lot of people, I think that you know the, the shock comes, and I know founders who who've personally said this, where they're suddenly in a position where they they feel like they've got a boss <laughs> or a set of bosses as well. So it's like you know, add, add all of that, and along with all of the other challenges co- combined with with scaling rapidly, the inability to really fully vet and control the the type of culture that you're fostering, the 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 the, the level of or quality of you know new individuals you're bringing into the team, like it's just compounded by a huge amount of issues, again and again and again. Like, but of course, then I suppose to play devil's advocate and to be fair on this. There is also a, very much a place for that for for certain uh, businesses and certain CEO, uh, CEOs. So, like you said, to your point, it's about knowing what's right right for the individual, right? So, um... I think just to go back to something
1: you said, it, it's it's quite funny because one stereotype about entrepreneurship is that you get to be your own boss, and that's the best thing about right. it. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 actually, that is, I think, out of everything I've discovered on my journey, that the most false uh, perception about uh, being an entrepreneur, because actually if you're an entrepreneur, you're you're not your own boss, you're actually everyone else's bitch. So like, whether it's, whether it's having a board of directors or investors Mm. or, or a team or clients, stakeholders, Mm. you're actually, you're ultimately accountable to like so many different people. And and that does not give you more autonomy, actually it kind of like restricts you. So I think anybody who goes into like, uh, trying to become a startup founder to actually become their own boss, got autonomy that is not what you're going to experience that, I, actually, it's a very
2: misguided reason for wanting to, to, to it's, it, business,
1: it's yeah. the opposite dynamic even having a team of people as an early stage ceo like, you have to be a servant to your mm. team like you have to find ways you know build the right culture coach people help people improve set a clear vision and strategy you are a servant to them rather mm. than being a servant to you so you, you are not going to have that feeling of being your own boss you, you're going to have the have the feeling of uh, having far more people dependent on you than you've ever experienced uh, before. So that is not a good yeah. reason to become a founder, in in my view, anyway.
2: No, I think that's a really good observation and, a, and an important uh, message for anyone listening who's maybe thinking of starting that journey for that reason, because you do hear that reason thrown around a lot for, you know, why do you want to start your own business? And say, like, well, I want to be my own boss, you know, or you hear people talking about that, like you say, like on TikTok and influencers saying, be your own boss. Like you said, there's no such thing, really. Yeah, I think that's a very good, good important observation to yeah bring out there. So, um, so yeah, so let, let's talk a bit about where you are now. Like, what's on the horizon? You know, you like you said, you're just closing this this current round. So when are you, when you're hoping to get all that wrapped up and all the all the documents signed and the money in the bank, I'm, I'm assuming the first part of Q1. Which, by the way, would probably, by the time this airs, will probably be in Q1 2024. So, about now. <laughs> yeah, so we're, really...
1: we're, we're breaking it into two closes. Uh, the first one should be done by the end of this week, hopefully, so mid December, and the second close in, in Q1. So, a lot of the investors in uh, in the first close are a lot of our existing shareholders and some right. new people, and then doing the second close in, in Q1. And, and that's going to give us you know, some additional. Uh, capital to be able to scale the business, grow the team a little bit in some positions we've identified that we really need to invest in for growth. But we're going to try and do this in a sustainable uh, way. I I still want to keep the the resource constraint pressures there uh, to get the business to a ability where we can be profitable in the long term. And and I I enjoy that feeling as a founder and I, I enjoy having to make those difficult resource allocation decisions because that is the beauty of entrepreneurship and making choices with scarce resources. So we've been quite disciplined about the money we're raising. And, and the other piece of advice to give as well is that I think it's really important that your investors actually buy into the, the mission and plan that you have, like that, the last thing you want is non-aligned investors. So, so we've been quite careful about only bringing people onto our cap table who buy into our kind of long-term plan for building the business and also have like an emotional connection to our mission as well, because I I think that just makes the process far more enjoyable. If people aren't just doing it for pure kind of hard-nosed commercial reasons, but also buy into the kind of romance of the business as well, that that creates more excitement for everyone. And when it comes to working with people, it's not just about the rational side, but the emotional side as well. That's just as important.
2: There's a, there's two individuals I'm going to have to connect you with after this call I'll make an introduction to co-founders of a, a fantastic uh AI business in the edtech space um who sort of come from the same problem I guess uh of the democratization of access to things within the educational system to to be a bit more broader about the problem I guess um which I'll absolutely have to, I had them on the podcast too again another one I can recommend you to to, to check out if you if you're inclined to um and uh and yeah that that what you were saying there about finding other people that you know uh that that buy into that vision and that that mission uh, that it just reminded me of their conversation about finding one another as co-founders and then other, other elements of their team and um not from the investor context but that and it, yeah so it just reminded me so a bit of a side note a bit of a, a bit of a waffle there but um yeah so how how would you say this because i assume that this this raise now this round Is what is it your first, uh, given your current scale of the business? So your first, where you're say a bit more focused on just the fundraising element of it, compared to maybe prior rounds where I'm assuming you were a lot more thinly spread. Would that be is that correct? Or or, well, yeah, because of your your seed round, I imagine that was that would have been where you were being a bit more of a generalist at the time, right? Yes, I think
1: whenever you raise funding, you should have a very clear idea of what next stage of your growth path is that funding going to enable you to to get to. So yeah. when it came to raising our pre-seed round, that was essentially about taking me out of my bedroom from being a kind of bootstrap bedroom founder and, and creating something that more resembled an organization. There's mm-hmm. something that had a, a a clear brand identity, a marketing presence, you know the beginnings of proprietary technology, early clients. So that, that was all about kind of actually building the, the roots of an organization. And then the seed round was essentially about um, building an in-house tech team to accelerate our product development and, and actually be able to accelerate things like user growth and engagement with the platform that, that mm. come out of that. And, and that was what the bulk of the investment was was used for to kind of build a team that could accelerate the development of this product. And now the round that we're raising is, is all about actually, the, can we really accelerate getting the product into the hands of more customers? can we get more employers in universities in the UK using our product and actually getting really high quality outcomes out of it so so you should have a very clear hypothesis at each stage of your fundraising journey what is that funding going to to do for you and you want that to be something you can capture in literally a couple of sentences but then behind that you'll also have like a a budget and a more in-depth breakdown but you should be able to capture the essence of why you're raising the funding in, in two sentences
0: a friendly reminder to share this episode with your network, like, comment, and subscribe. It really helps the show, and only takes a couple of minutes.
2: Yeah, I think that that's that's really good advice for those raising who who maybe they have that maybe those first couple of sentences, but, but not, not the deeper insight uh, or ideas as to what how they're actually going to allocate that money. Um, yeah, that's really good. But what about you specifically, though, as an individual? Um, do you think has changed from Ah, uh, the last time you raised to now, if you notice a significant difference in the way that you're able to approach things, given the different stage you are at, personally and professionally.
1: Personally, I uh, haven't spotted any wrinkles yet. Yeah. Uh thankfully. The uh but I think <laughs> the, the, the the old grey hair appearing every now and again, which uh what wasn't a problem that I was facing two years ago. Um <laughs> I, I,
2: think I think that's just time, I wouldn't worry about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I but being, being a star founder does accelerate that uh time it does timing it, yeah. journey or aging it accelerates well. the
2: aging process, yeah, for sure. I, I think <laughs> it to... <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: think in terms of um each stage of your fundraising, the expectations get, get higher. So like when we did our pre-seed rounds, most people would debate a decision about whether to invest on the back of you no know, two meetings and having a deck that really clearly articulated your vision, your strategy, your plan for the funding. When you get to the seed rounds, you know people, maybe two or three meetings, people want a deck, they'll also want the financial model accompanying that as well, which articulates your business in numbers. And people will kind of explore those to to, to varying degrees. When when you get to kind of like more series A stage, which is where we're at now, like people want a far more credible financial model, which is based on the robust numbers, based on data you've got for the past couple of years. The deck needs to be more in depth. And you actually need things like a data room to validate some of the things that you're saying in the deck. So each stage of your fundraising journey, The level of expectation and scrutiny will increase. And and that's why you need to have such a clear idea about what you're going to do with the funding and that kind of step plan. Because you need to be able to go to your investors and say, This is what I said two years ago, this is what I've done. This is where we are now on the journey. And this is what I need to get to the next stage. And you need to be able to diligence that, that in your in your data room and in your financial model. And that's not to say that things have to be exactly the same as you said. Two years ago, that investors mm. appreciate that startups need to pivot, need to change things, your assumptions. But, but in terms of being able to evidence like what you've done with the money and having a clear plan there, like that the expectation will increase over time. So I think that's something that founders have to be prepared for as well. That the the way you raise money at the pre-seed level is not the way you raise money, money at the, the Series A level. Like it, it changes, and you have to evolve over time mm. in terms of, like how you how you raise capital. Be um, a Pokemon. Be a pokemon yeah
2: mm. yeah no, that's interesting so so have, have you found that i mean th- by its very nature then but you know based on what you're saying it's a lot more of a it's a task that inv- involves a lot more detail and nuance uh, not only from what you have to provide but attention to detail in documenting the journey so you know uh, thus far um and and of course talking about the future of the company for for investors so from from for you personally have you found that it's kind of it makes sense then that you are now in a position where presumably you could give that a lot more time than you could have done, let's say a year ago, uh, given where you are and now the team being where it is, and maybe even having some supportive individuals in the team, um, sort of helping you with with this sort of stuff. Um, so do you, do you think that that's, that's one of the key I guess key benefits of getting to the stage that you're at is being able to focus on that because of a lot of founders I speak to say that they feel like really the, the vast majority of their work as a CEO um, at this sort of stage is just really keeping an eye on funding um, and maintaining those relationships. So do you feel the same way or do you feel that there's a little bit more to it than that?
1: I think fundraising definitely is one of your main responsibilities as a founder of a kind of, if you are running really an organization that does require a lot of capital to grow and fundraising mm. will, will be one of your main priorities um i, I think pe- people have different ways of working in terms of how much they involve their wider team like actually at zero gravity I, I don't really involve the rest of our exec team in the fundraising process because I, i've always felt quite adept at doing that myself and i i, I want to keep the exec team be able to focus on executing their part of the, the strategy because it, it's actually executing those strategies that gives you a stronger fundraising proposition and one of the dangers of fundraising is that it can become incredibly distracting and people can like not focus on their core day-to-day work, which is actually growing the business that you're fundraising for in the first place. So, so I, I like to keep my exec team undistracted by the fundraising process and sort of soak that up myself. But I know some people do do it differently and diversify a little bit more, but that, that's what I've always found is is, is best. And, and the second thing I'd say is cultivate your relationship with your... Shareholders and investors, as well, around 50% of the investors in our seed round are existing shareholders. I think 75% of the investors in the first close of our current funding round are existing shareholders. A lot of investors, if they invest in you, they've got skin in the game, they understand the business, they really like it, they will continue investing to kind of keep their share of the business whole for as long as they financially uh can do and make sense Mm. for them so actually one of your biggest funding caps is your existing shareholder base and i think a lot of founders actually overlook that but they raise Mm. one round of funding from shareholders almost forget about them like just give them a kind of cursory uh, update every now and again and they'll assume that their next round they have to start all over again from scratch with a new group of people but actually your your primary investors for your next round are probably actually or you're on your cap table and indeed the new investors are probably people within those people's network as wow. well so it's an app. So you need to create a strategy on cultivating shareholder relations because mm-hmm. that is not just the right thing to do but that is actually how you grow a successful growing business
2: mm-hmm. yeah brilliant advice yeah um bit of an odd question for you but you know you mentioned a bit about your background and stuff um, and it was just making me think, because yep. I, I know I've asked myself this question plenty of time. I have a similar background to you, you know, divorced, uh, you know, single parent uh, household. Um, it was actually quite interesting, just not, not to bore you too much with this, but born and raised in Oxford, where you went to university. Uh, my mother and father, when they were together up until uh, I was about five or six when they split up, were quite wealthy. You would probably say we were in their sort of upper classes in Oxford for a while, and then split up money become a bit more of an issue and and then I suppose we're bit, bit considered more working class or middle class. Um uh yeah so, so you know very similar sort of uh you know I can I can relate to some of the things you said but yeah the question is this like um what what do you think sort of 15, 16 year old uh Joe would say to or make of the Joe that we've got here in front of us now? What what do you think he would make of him? I think he'd be
1: Probably a little bit disappointed that he's not a Premier League football player. In all honesty, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had to give an no offensive cancer. Yeah, but that was yeah. my sort of n- number one dream as a a child. I, I had I, a feeling think...
2: that that might be the case. You mentioned football a few times in this in this uh, conversation, so yeah.
1: Listen, football is the number one love. I think of a lot of uh, young boys in particular in the UK. Mm. Um, what What do you think? I, I think you would think the journey I've been on is unfathomable, because. A little bit like how I mentioned the law of compounding at the beginning of this conversation. When you go on that kind of 1% per week better journey, it can be quite frustrating at times because you don't see massive results overnight. Mm. In fact, even if you look from one week to the next, nothing really changes. But if you do get on that 1% path, the compounding effect you get over a kind of four or five-year period is absolutely huge. Uh, I think this is a concept people understand a bit more intuitively now because we went through the COVID period where people had to get their head around the idea of, kind of compounding exponential growth and the idea that if a virus spreads 1% per day, it can infect an entire population in a, in a couple of weeks. So, so people understand that concept intuitively now. I think often they don't apply it to their own lives. So I think 16-year-old Joe will be absolutely baffled by by what zero gravity has become and I never would have thought you know, doing something like that and going this far was possible. But the only reason that has come into being is because I did get on that 1% journey when I was mm. 16. I just you know trying to get better, not giving up and, and just trying to focus on optimizing my own performance, whether it was getting into university. Learning new skills, starting a business from my bedroom, you know, growing it incrementally, you know, raising funding to then build a team. It was all kind of step by step by step, and and you need to be in in it for the long run as as a founder. Like these overnight success stories are, are the thing of popular culture and TV. They're not the thing of reality. Now, I I grew up watching films like The Social Network. That was probably my like first um like movie introduction to the world of startups and. And that film kind of presents the growth of Facebook as kind of like an overnight success. And, you no, know, Facebook, out of all businesses, probably did grow much faster than most startups. But at the same time, when you actually look at the story of Facebook. They, they spent their early years, you know, jumping around college campuses before it became the kind of worldwide platform for connecting with your friends. So even those businesses that look like the most monolithic high growth organizations today actually started off. Of just taking those like baby baby steps so I, I just get on that journey that that it's as simple as that really
2: yeah what what sparked that journey for you and what was the what was the catalyst i, I don't think there was any one moment i think it was just <laughs>
1: as i mentioned at the beginning just a product of my background which is no, you know i was sort of a lot of resilience i probably had a bit of childhood trauma to overcome a bit of chip on my shoulder I had a bit of anxiety about the fact that I felt like I couldn't necessarily depend on other people. I had to you know, depend on myself. Like I didn't want to feel like vulnerable throughout my entire life. And I just think that created a certain degree of drive inside me to try and defy the odds and not take no for an answer. So I don't think it was any one moment. I think it was a yeah. a buildup of forces over time. And and that's why I think everyone should try and find a thing in their life that they can reconceptualize as a driving force in their life. And I think the, the dark truth of that is it's often easier to find a driving force out of a negative than it is a positive because I think people's natural reaction is to run away from things rather than run towards things. Mm. I think that's just a, a natural part of being a human being, how we've evolved to try and you know, escape death rather than necessarily you know create the new big thing. So, so actually reconceptualizing your something, reconceptualizing something that you're running away from as a positive driving force is probably the easiest way you can you can mm-hmm. do it. So rather than necessarily trying to kind of like find your passion or find your purpose by being exploratory about what's out there in the world, maybe actually look inwards into yourself and look at the, what are those no negative things in your life that are getting you down, that are creating that chip on your shoulder, which you can turn into something positive. I mean yeah, that's the easiest way what's to feel holding
2: it. you back kind of thing. What can you do to, to strip those things away? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not, not, not even
1: strip them away, but like to kind of flip the direction of gravity. So rather right. than holding you down, like that is the accelerant force. Like if you if you're from a single parent family and you felt a sense of financial anxiety and vulnerability, how would you turn that into a driving force to actually building something where you don't have that experience and your children don't have that experience? Rather than seeing something that is something that like traps you in the long term, I think that's the kind Mm. of mentality shift you have to try and create.
2: Mm, I like it, and and I'm assuming that's where the name zero gravity comes from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. If we come full circle, we tied it all back around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Would you say that you're 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 someone um, that, as a CEO, that functions with a certain level of, of of anxiety? Because I I I class myself as someone that sort of as a functionally anxious individual, right? That's how I kind of class myself. I've found a way to to deal with my anxieties in a way that I think turns them into a kind of a semi productive force, right? Would you Would you say that you you are much the same, or do you feel that that's a sort of a part of your life that you've you've fully set aside?
1: I think, I think nowadays I'm not an anxious person, but I, I think that's because I've I've taken so many gut punches and overcome so many challenges. I've almost become slightly inoculated to it, which is like like try to tackle challenges is now so much in my day-to-day that doesn't give me that same rush of anxiety that it probably Mm -hmm. did five years ago when I was first founding a business. And I think that goes back to the idea that like resilience is it's it is a trait. It's a trait that is essentially a muscle. That you train over time like some people inherently have more resilience than others but actually the best way to grow your resilience is by putting yourself in situations where you're forced to actually build 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 that muscle experience Mm -hmm. um so so like nowadays now I, i will face challenges day to day now which five years ago would have made me feel incredibly nervous and mm. it would have been just as much of a psychological challenge as a business challenge and now nowadays, nowadays those things just bounce off me and, and that isn't because of any kind of supernatural force that i've developed in my in myself it's just a product of experience having tackled mm. those things for the past five years so so again like you just have to get on that train of starting to develop that that muscle like if, if you're feeling anxiety and imposter syndrome because you're stepping into something new appreciate that that's actually a good sign of personal mm. growth. That means you're getting outside your comfort zone, you get into the edge of your constraint. It definitely doesn't feel very nice whatsoever. Like it's difficult to reconceptualize how it feels. It, it doesn't feel nice, but 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 understand that it, it's part of your growth. And actually the, the, the fact you're feeling those pangs mm. is a sign you're doing the right thing. Mm. And and, it, and and if you keep going, you're not going to feel that in five years' time. I walked into the University of Oxford, a very nervous eighteen-year-old from a small suburb in the UK. Suddenly, surrounded by the kind of you know grand spires of Oxford and their you know, people with posh, plummy voices, and that filled me with a lot of imposter syndrome when I was eighteen. But by the time I graduated, living in that environment felt completely normal because that had just become my day to day, and I'd worked out how to overcome that imposter syndrome. So a lot of this stuff is just a product of time and training. So, so don't feel like if you're feeling anxiety because you're starting something new, uh, that's an intrinsic part of yourself that you can't change.
2: Mm. Good advice. Very good advice. And look, just to wrap it up, because um, we're, we're almost come to time, which always blows me away how quickly this goes by. Um, yeah, you, we, we touched on briefly about, uh, you know, Q1 of next year is when you should be wrapping up the second part of the close. So what else can can we expect from from Zero Gravity and you in, in sort of 2024, what's obviously growth is the, I assume the word of the day, and you kind of touched on that, but but what else could we, we could be expecting to see, are, are there, should we, should we be keeping an eye out for certain things?
1: I think Zero Gravity became known for the first couple of years as a, a transformative solution for getting people from low-opportunity areas into top universities. Um, they've supported over 8,000 students now, into leading universities, but a big part of what we're doing is now actually getting students into internships and careers. They're getting into a top university yeah. is a is a game changer, but it, it doesn't it it's not the the end of the road. And and getting that first step into your career correct is incredibly important to your long term you no know, trajectory. So so we're working with a lot of employers now to really try and change the game of who gets access to elite professions, like not just in those. A typical banking law firm consultancy roles, but also in the creative industries and startups, technology mm-hmm. as well. And, and that's becoming an ever increasing facet of, of what we're doing. So I think that's the key thing to, to look out for, though, not just the stuff we're doing, getting people into universities, but also careers as well. And I want to fundamentally change the demographics of people working in these elite professions, not just because mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing to do, but because I think that is the key to the productivity challenge that most organizations face being, yeah. a, being able to access talent from all backgrounds, not just a small subset of the country.
2: Couldn't agree more. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's something I'm excited to keep an eye out for. Um, no, I'll let you go. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Like I said, by the time this comes out, we would have had uh, Christmas and New Year. But Merry Christmas and New Year to you. And look, if, if you enjoyed this conversation, I can't wait for you know round two at some point in the future um maybe where you can share where you are then because it'll be really interesting to hear um as it has been interesting to hear where how you've got here so far so yeah man you've got another cheerleader on the sidelines for you uh, cheers, mate. I'll be, uh yeah I, I'll, I'll be watching with um with great anticipation um yeah thank you so much have a awesome. great rest Good of stuff your day and week cheers you too mate see you later cheers take care see you soon bye-bye
0: thank you for listening and door watching Please like and subscribe and join in the conversation in the comments below.